if you're willing to try something maybe new or maybe different this morning, uh, I want to put into action part of what we have seen as we've walked through the book of Philippians, which is there is to be between us as believers a, a deep sense of affection and care and concern for each other especially manifested for those who maybe we're not geographically with, but we care for them just the same because they're our brothers and sisters, and so we offer prayer on their behalf. Uh, what I'd like to do this morning, uh, this is, if you're not aware, and I, uh, this is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And what I would like for us to do is something we would do in the college ministry, and this may push some of you, and, and that's okay because it's just between you and the Lord. But what I'd like for us to do is I'm going to open us into a word of prayer. And what I'd like for you to do is for all of us in the room to, when I say, dear Heavenly Father, and begin praying, that you would pray out loud. All of us out loud at one time as you're led, praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are now facing the threat of the Taliban, praying for our brothers and sisters in countries like Iran and North Korea, where, where Christianity is vehemently outlawed, praying for our brothers and sisters in, in other nations where it's not completely outlawed, but it is deeply persecuted. We owe our brothers and sisters prayers as if we are in chains with them. And so I would like for all of us to pray aloud. When I sense the room waning, I will pray to close us out and enter into our time of preaching through the word. So, I'm going to say, dear Heavenly Father, and open us in prayer, and I'm going to ask that you, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, you would pray aloud as you are led, and when that wanes, I will close us, all right? Clear? We good? If I have an amen so I know everybody's on board? All right. So here we go. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. Father, we come to you much like um, I imagine the Philippian church was coming to you on behalf of Paul. God, we, we're, we can't see. There are n nameless faces of men and women, boys and girls who are our brothers and sisters in you that, Father, we, we won't ever see until we are all gathered around your table. 
But Father, they are family. And they are either physically in chains or they, they, are, they are in a metaphorical sense based on the laws of their nation. They are in chains and, and they are, um, as they come to worship today, in whatever form, whatever way they have to, Lord, they understand the life and death reality of, of what it means to follow you in a way that too often can be lost on us. And so, Father, I just simply ask that today that they would know your comfort, that they would know your peace, that they would know your power, that Holy Spirit, they would know your complete and total supply of everything they need to be able to love you fully, to follow you faithfully, to stand for you in every way. God, we do ask that you would supernaturally protect them. God, we also ask if they must face suffering, that you, that they would just know your faithfulness to preserve them, to carry them through it, that though they may stand alone physically, you stand with them. So Father, we entrust and lay them, and lay them into your hands. May you move in them. May you move through them, Father. Um, may those around them in their country see your everlasting light through them. And may those who do not know you, Father, may they come to know you. Jesus, as we open up your word and turn our eyes to you, Holy Spirit, may our hearts simply be willing to say yes. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Church family, if you got your Bibles, we're going to dive right in. We're in the book of Philippians chapter 1, and I, and I don't want to give you a heart attack because we've been averaging about three verses a week. Today we're going through nine, so, but don't worry, the sermon's not equally reflective in longer, but uh, Philippians chapter 1, and, and what we've been seeing is Paul's writing this church in Philippi, and he has been describing his present situation as he is in prison. Uh, he's under house arrest, and, and there's this concern, could this impede or stop the spread of the gospel, the progression of the church? And he says, by no means. In fact, actually, this, this house arrest has progressed. It has furthered the gospel. And he said, it's because people now know what I'm actually here for. They're seeing in reality the truth behind my suffering, as well as those in Christ are being emboldened, strengthened. Their, their, their trust and confidence in Christ is greater, and they are proclaiming the word. And he and there's two groups of these. Some are proclaiming the word out of the right motivation, out of love. Some are out of a sense of rivalry, thinking to cause me harm. He says, but in all of this, I rejoice. I rejoice in the role I have here in prison for defense of the faith. I rejoice that the gospel is going out, even if there are those who need to be dealt with in their motives. He says, in this, I rejoice. He says, church family, in my present circumstances, I am rejoicing. And then he says this, look at the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that these circumstances will turn out for my deliverance, or, or more accurate, vindication. He's actually quoting from Job chapter 13, verse 16. In the Greek, it's the same as, as the Greek version, the Greek translation of Job, and it's where Job is stating to his friends who are saying, Job, your suffering is because of your sin. You must have messed up. You must have angered God. And, and Job says, look, I'm going to stand before the Lord, and when I stand before the Lord, he will vindicate me. 
That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I know that these circumstances, my suffering, the imprisonment for the gospel, it is going to turn out for my deliverance, my salvation, my vindication from God for all eternity. Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, in accordance with my earnest expectation and hope. And here's why he will be vindicated, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, with all freedom and frankness and fullness of speech, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's what he says. He says, he says, I am confident that, and the reason I'm, re- I'm going to rejoice is that what I am suffering now will, will turn out for my vindication because, because God will not allow me to be put to shame. God will be faithful to carry through every word that he has said. Not only that, but there is this, this, this reality, there is a surrender in my life to not being ashamed of the gospel, but being for the gospel and with boldness. And that word boldness there, it is the idea of complete and total freedom of speech, frankness, not skipping anything. And catch, you catch the, the weight of that for Paul? My speech has me in prison, but the law doesn't determine whether or not I have the freedom to preach the gospel. The king of kings determines that, and he said, preach the gospel. So it doesn't matter what the law of the land is. I speak the gospel with frankness, and with frankness, it is my expectation. The reason I will be vindicated is because Christ will be exalted. And he changes the tense of the verb in a way that you and I wouldn't expect. He doesn't say, because I will exalt Christ. No, in a statement of humility, he says, it's not me who will exalt Christ. It is Christ through me, Christ in me. Christ will exalt himself to the world. And this is going to show when the Lord examines my life and sits down and judges it, he will say, well done. I will be vindicated. But notice, where is that confidence? Where does it come from? He gives you, two, gives us two things. He says, through your prayers, through the prayers of the church, the church who is praying for his needs, for his lack, praying and entreating the Lord to provide, and not just the church's prayers, but in line with those prayers, he says, the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means the things that the Holy Spirit who lives within us, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, God himself, the things that the Holy Spirit provides. Because the reason I'm going to make it through this is because you're praying for me and the Spirit is going to provide what he promises to provide. And all of this is in accordance with this earnest, this eager expectation. It's this striving forward with my head locked on one thing, ignoring everything else around. It is a confident hope that now is always. You see, in Paul, Paul sees how the church is caring for him and lifting him up in prayer, and he sees how those prayers tie to the provision and movement of the Holy Spirit, enabling him to stand, and all that is in line with a surrendered, yielded, singular desire that Christ be made large, that Christ be magnified with a confidence that it won't be him who magnifies Christ, but Christ through him, whether by life or by death. This is why Paul is rejoicing. But what serves as the bedrock? Why is Paul in this place? Look at what it says. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If you want here is Paul's life first. What is Paul's life? What is the, the overarching philosophy? What is the conviction that drives his whole life? Here it is. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying for me to live is to live valuing Christ, about the things Christ is about. For me to live is identified with Christ, identified with his life, his death, his resurrection, to share in his sufferings. For me to live is Christ and death, the reality that death would bring in my life which Paul says in 2 Corinthians would separate us, separate him from his body, but put him present with Jesus Christ. Amen. It's gain. It's to my advantage. He says, this is, this is why, in the face of all of this, why I will be vindicated, why there is this earnest expectation and hope. Why? Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in light of this reality, here's, the, here's what this means within me. In this moment of personal reflection, look at, look at what he says. But if I am to continue living in the flesh, meaning if I'm to live in my body, this will mean fruitful labor. It means I'm going to labor in things that matter and things that are productive for Christ. And he says, but I don't know which, which, which I will make known. I don't, I don't know which will be. I don't know what is, what is there. He says, I am hard pressed. This, I am constrained. I feel this pressure from both directions. There is a pull to desire to stay living and minister fruitfully. There is a pull to depart to be with Christ. And he says, having the desire, the intense longing to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the body is more necessary, vital for your sake. So convinced, convicted, settled in this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for what? For your progress and joy in the faith. He says, not only is he concerned about the progress of the gospel amongst the lost, but he is concerned about the progress of those who are saved in the gospel, growing into deeper and greater and more perfect maturity in Christ. I'm convinced that to stay and label on your behalf is what must be. And then he says, look in verse 26, so that your proud boasting in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again, that this joy that you have, church in Philippi, and in me and, and with me, that that would abound in Christ, that that thanksgiving in Christ would abound as I return to you. What Paul says is, here's the reality. For me to live as Christ and die as gain means there is a tension in my heart as I sit in prison with a very real reality. Paul obviously expects we see to be released but he, he also sits in a reality where he's not in control. While he expects to be released, the emperor could look at him and say, off with his head, as would happen years later. And so as he contemplates living as Christ, dying as gain, there's this tension, this desire to go, and, and, and since his life is Christ, to go and to be, to see Christ face to face. Yet there is equally but we've already seen in Philippians this longing, the affection of Christ, this passion and care for his brothers and sisters in Christ that says, if I remain in the flesh, it will be laboring fruitfully. It will be for your progression in the faith, or as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four, to see the body grown up, knitted together, and growing into maturity. So because of this, he says, I'm convinced there will be a release, and I will come to you again, and I will continue to labor on your behalf. And don't you catch that with Paul? Isn't that interesting to live in Christ's dying game? Don't you see what he says? If I'm going to remain in the flesh, I don't get the right to go, well, I've already suffered quite a bit. I think it's time for me to kind of take my foot off the gas. 
Paul doesn't say, you know, I've already had a great and long and prosperous ministry career. It's time for me to retire and, and settle back and, and pull away. No, what does Paul say? He says, if I'm going to continue with my every breath, it will be for God's work and will amongst you, for your progress and joy in the faith. So all of a sudden, Paul goes from describing his circumstances to, to talking about what will be, this, this expectation of, of vindication that Jesus will be exalted because he is completely and totally surrendered and identified with Christ in life and in death, which is why death is a gain, and he goes on to contemplate. So church family, very simply for you and I this morning, where does this reality of Paul, the statement for me to live as Christ and die as gain, where does that intersect into our life? And it's very simple, okay? In fact, if you're a, if you're a uh, grammarian, if you like to follow sermon structure, let me just be real simple. There is one point to the whole sermon today. And it's this, we've been talking about chapter one, being a gospel-driven church. If we're gonna be a gospel-driven church, we must be a people for whom to live is Christ and to die is gain, Amen. period. If we're gonna be a gospel-driven church following Christ, then we must be a people for whom to live is Christ and to die is gain. And understand this statement. This statement does not mean that we all just need to become super Jesus-loving Christians, pull out of all of our jobs and all go into vocational full-time ministry. It's not what this verse means. And we laugh, but I, I, having worked with students for so long, every time you see a student who really has a passion and love for Jesus, what are the comments everybody gives to him? Hey, have you thought about going into ministry? As if well, you really love Jesus, so you should be in ministry. The rest of us aren't in ministry because we don't love Jesus as much. That's logic doesn't line up. No, this isn't what it's saying. Every one of us in this room, obviously God's called me to be a pastor in vocational ministry, but there's some of you, God's called to be businessmen and women, teachers, doctors, blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, all sorts of different professions, some who are stay-at-home uh, parents. God has called all of us into different realities, and all of us must be people for whom to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not a statement of what our vocation is, but it is a statement of what our value is. To live as Christ means we value who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. It means every last atom of who we are is constrained and controlled by Christ means we love what he loves. It means we think the thoughts he thinks. It means we value what he values. It means we grieve what he grieves. And just take this simply, if we were to examine our lives and look at the choices with which we make for entertainment, does it reflect Jesus? The movies we watch, the music we listen to, the apps we use, the way in which we joke, the celebrities we admire, is the way we use our time in pursuit of pleasure and recreation or job or, or vocation, does it line up with the values of Christ, the things Christ values? Church family, I've watched this play out. We've all watched this play out. And if we're honest, all of us are guilty at different times of, if we're honest, in any area, not valuing what Christ values, not loving what Christ loves, not thinking either about the world or about ourselves the way Christ thinks. But I've watched this play out time and time again with parents of students. 
Okay, if you're a parent in the room and to you to live as Christ, to die as gain, means that has to come, come over and be binding even on your parenting. How many parents have I watched who it's not the student pushing themselves to play every club sport. It's not the student pushing themselves to be in every extracurricular. It is mom and dad in order that student would have the resume that they need to get into the college, to get the six-figure job, to live the rest of their life. Where is the value and will and purpose and plan of God for that child's life? Played out very simply. I'll never forget one time when a student hadn't shown up to church in a bit and I reached out and said, hey, just checking in on you. Oh, well, I've been grounded. I did this thing and, and I've been grounded from church. Not grounded from band, not grounded from sports, not grounded from the things that go on a resume, but grounded from church. And in my mind, I thought, that's the most silliest thing in the world, because if there's one place where you're going to get the truth to not get grounded again, it would be church. But you see what I mean? All of us, if to live is Christ and die is gain, it means a statement of our value, or our, is what we value in line with Christ. It also means not just living is, is being, conform, being constrained and controlled by Christ. It means we have to view death differently. Don't miss that. Death is gain. It's the logical outflow of a life that is consumed with knowing Jesus Christ. For to die is to be united with Christ. And this is not Paul saying, I've given up, I'm in despair, I just want to die, get me away. No, this is a longing in Paul that longs to see the face of Jesus, his Savior and his Lord by sight and not just faith as now. While we are absent from heaven but present in the body. Dying is gain. There is a different picture of death. And this doesn't even mean that Paul's going, for me, dying is gain because I'm so driven to know Jesus that other relationships don't matter. That's not what he's saying. We've already seen there is a deep affection. He longs with passion to get back to the Philippians because the people matter if we really love Christ. But what this is is the statement of value in our lives what is our value? But it's not just a statement of value. We, we can miss this. This is also a statement of identity. For Paul to say, for me to live is Christ, it's not merely a statement of value as if this verse speaks to you and I today to simply, hey, church family, let's do better. Because if we try to do better in our own strength and we don't really actually know who we are in Christ, if in fact we are in Christ, we will fall flat. It's a statement of identity. What does Paul say? If you've got your Bibles, just flip over a couple pages to the left. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Or if you use a phone, swipe over a couple pages to the left. Listen to what he says. This is what Paul says. Verse 20, Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you hear what he says? He says, I have died. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. That is a statement of identity, Amen. of who we are. If we're in Christ, it's no longer. In fact, maybe this. My tombstone should already be in existence, and it should read that I died August 14th, 1994. Because on August 14th, 1994, Wes Wilkinson was crucified with Christ. And if I really understand what Jesus has done in my life, then I understand it's no longer I who live for me with my rights and my power, but it is Christ who lives within me. Now, obviously, I'm still conscious. Obviously, we still live in our bodies, which is why Paul then says, and the life I live in the flesh, 
I live in faith, meaning walking by faith, walking by complete and total confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done and every last word he has said. To live as Christ's church family is a statement of who we are. And for us to truly get to a place where we can say in our lives to live as Christ and to die as gain, how do we get in that place? It starts with whether or not we are walking by faith in who Jesus is and what he's done and what he says that means for our lives if in fact we have been saved. If we're going to be a gospel-driven church, we've got to be a people for whom to live as Christ and to die as gain. But then what is that going to look like What is that going to look like when that reality takes place in us? What is that going to look like lived out? Well, look, there's four quick things that it's going to look like. One, it's going to mean knowing and valuing God's vindication of our lives. You see that? Flip back to the beginning. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, for my vindication. If we're going to be people for whom to live as Christ and die as gain, we are going to rejoice in knowing that God will vindicate our lives if we follow him. Listen, church, let me put this in a simple way. There is nothing that you and I give up for Jesus Christ in which the world mocks us and says, you fool, that before the court of eternity, God, whose decision is the only one that matters, we'll look and say, well done. Vindication. There is no amount, student, when God leads you to give something up in school and it might put you and make you look like you're not part of the crowd, there is no amount of what you will give up for the cause of Christ, for the person of Christ, for the work of Christ in you, that the world will mock you, that God will not vindicate you. For you, brother and sister, you, you, you choose not to take a promotion and a job solely for the reason, for whatever, for whatever reason God has stirred you, that that is not the step he would have you take. And all of your friends, even believers, look and say, that's crazy. Why would you not do that? If it's God who leads you to say no, God will vindicate that. You see, we've got to begin seeking and desiring a different, a, a different evaluation of our life. We cannot be driven by the evaluation of the world. We must be driven by the evaluation and the vindication of God on our lives. And by the way, God is clear in his word. He always vindicates the life of his servants. And we can rejoice in that if we know it. Just as an aside, you and I can never rejoice in something we don't really know. So if we're not really familiar with what the Lord said and we're not really resting on it in faith, it's going to be hard to rejoice in it. So to be a people for whom to live as Christ and die as gain means we're going to know and value the vindication of God in our lives. It's going to also mean we eagerly hope for Christ to be glorified through our lives. We see that in the text, Paul says, it's my earnest expectation. There is this, there is this complete and total focus of my life on Christ such that my head is straining forward watching, ignoring all the other naysayers, all the other, all the other fears, all the other voices. It's, it is so locked on. That is my earnest expectation that Christ may be exalted, may be lifted, may be made much of church family. There should be this kind of locked on eagerness that says, Jesus, whatever you must do to exalt yourself through my life, yes, amen, hallelujah, here am I. 
And it's gonna involve doing that. I mean, boldness, this confidence of boldness, this idea of speaking freely and frankly. Listen, church family, it doesn't matter what laws are passed. It doesn't matter what country you and I live in. We are not allowed before Christ to mince words. Now, it doesn't mean that we have to be the caricature of the angry, fiery street preacher who just is rude. God calls us to be clear, but he tells us to do it with gentleness and grace, to speak the truth in love. But we're not allowed to mince words. What God calls sin, we must call sin, because if we don't call it sin, then we won't be able to say, and here's how Jesus will fix it. Not only fix it, but eliminate it, because he completely and totally paid the price for our sin on the cross. And let's be clear, I know we often praise, Lord, thank you for the freedom we have to proclaim the gospel. Listen, if America comes out tomorrow and says you're not allowed to preach the gospel, we still have freedom to preach the gospel because the King of Kings said we should. That's what boldness is. Boldness to proclaim the word of Christ that Christ may be exalted. But let me just say this, church family. If we're gonna be yielded to Christ exalting himself through our lives. And we'll see this more as we work through the book of Philippians. We've already seen it a little bit. We'll see it more. But if we're going to be surrendered to that idea, we have to be prepared that God will allow us to be in situations where we are weak. That may be through suffering and trial, maybe through hardship. That may be from a persecution standpoint. That may be from a health standpoint. That may be from, we can come up with a lot of different illustrations and ideas, but God may allow you and I very likely to be in a place where we are weak, where we say, God, if you could just remove this hardship, we could be so much more for you. And that's the same thing Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 12. God, if you could just take away this infirmity, there's so much more I could do for your kingdom. And what was God's response? My grace is enough. My power, what do you think is going to magnify Jesus, his power? My power is perfected in weakness. So what does Paul say? I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, that when I am weak, he is strong. Church family, if we're really going to have that desire that Christ be magnified through us, we have to be prepared I don't know what that will look like for me. I don't know what that will look like for you, but we must be prepared that there are going to be times where God intentionally keeps us weak. Whether weak in our eyes, weak in the world's eyes, because when we are weak, if we will look to him and depend on that grace, his power is perfected. And the world cannot ignore. So, we're going to eagerly desire that Christ be magnified. But what else? If we're going to, to be people for whom to live as Christ has died and gain, it's going to mean being confident in the Spirit's provision in our lives. Did you see that? Uh, the reason this is going to happen is because of the provision of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just give you a list here, okay? I got a list on my, piece, on my, on my note sheet here. If you want this list and you're a note taker, don't try to take notes. I'm going to move too quick. Just email me. I'll be happy to send you all the notes and you can see the list. But just get, this is just a list of some things the Holy Spirit promises to provide in our life. Acts 1.8, power. That word power, the ability to do what actually you're called to do. You know what that means practically, church family? There's not a single command of God in our life that we're not actually able to do if the Holy Spirit really lives within us. And you know why we can do it? Because he lives within us and we'll rest in him. His power will enable us to do it because he gives us power. 
He gives us direction, clear guidance in situations. Acts 16, we see in John 14 and John 16, the Holy Spirit guides, instructs, convicts. We see in 2 Corinthians 1, he provides the comfort of Christ in our hearts. In Romans 5, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. In Galatians 5, he produces his fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As well in Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit gives victory over sin in our daily life. In Romans 8, he gives life to our mortal body, as well as assurance that you and I belong to God, and it's by the Holy Spirit we can say, Abba, Father. We also see in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit himself prays for us when we don't even know how to pray, and he prays the perfect will of God over our lives. Not only this, but Luke chapter 12, 11 through 12, Luke chapter 21, 12 through 15, what else the Holy Spirit does? Jesus looks at his disciples, and you can picture this. Jesus looks at his disciples, this group of rag, ragged, small town, uneducated men of all different backgrounds. And he says, one day, you're going to be brought before governors, kings, councils on, for my sake. And he says, do not fear what you are to say, for in that hour, the Holy Spirit will give you what you ought to say. Church family, you and I can be confident that when we're put in a situation for Christ to magnify himself through us, if truly to live in Christ is dying gain, then that means there is never a situation you and I will not face where the Holy Spirit does not give us the words we are to say. All right. I don't know what time the Cowboys game is, but we got one more simple reality here. Well, let me back up. I want you to notice one other thing about this. You see how it says in verse 19, through your prayers, according to the provision? In the Greek, both the prayers and the provision are governed by the same article. Now, listen, I'm not a grammarian. You don't need to, but here's why this is important. What Paul's trying to say is there is a connection between the prayers of the church and the movement of the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is God. He's not dependent upon us to move. He has total freedom to move, but the Holy Spirit delights to move at the prayers of his people, which is why we prayed earlier. It's why we have Monday night prayer gatherings. It's why if we're gonna be a gospel-driven church, we have to be a praying church. In fact, I read this week that in the state of Texas, there are several churches that are seeing unbelievable revival within the church and awakening in the lostness of their community to the gospel. And it's not because they came up with new ideas. It's not because they found a new strategy. They scrapped all the strategies and they went back and put a focus on praying. There is a connection between prayer. So if we're going to be confident in the Spirit's provision, we must also, little sub-point, we must also be people for, of prayer. Amen. Now, lastly, if we're going to be a people for whom to live as Christ as die as gain, this is what it's going to mean. It's going to mean laboring for fruitful ministry with our lives. See that? Verses 22 through 26, Paul's tears. If I stay here, if I stay on in the flesh, in light of the fact that for me to live as Christ and die is gain, there must be fruitful ministry. There must be labor that is productive for the work of the kingdom. And let me tell you what that means for you and I, church family, real simple. Every one of you in this room, if you are in Christ, God has ministry you are called to do. It means there are people in this world you have been left here to reach. It means there are people in this world you have been left here to share the gospel with. There are people in this world you have been left here, you have been called here to disciple. Every one of us in this room, if you're an elementary student, you're a kid, 
God has things he wants to do through you. He has ministry through you. If you're a student, God has ministry through you. If you're a young adult, if you're an old adult, if you're a middle adult, if you're a single adult, if you're a married adult, if you're any other title I've forgotten of adult, God has a ministry to do through you. And if we are to live as Christ and die as gain, then it means it is time for the stat where 80% of the church ministry and budget is given and done by 20% or less of the people. It's time for that to flip and then some. For 80% of the people and more to do the work of the ministry, to, get, to, do, to, to do the labor of giving the tithes and the offerings, it's time for that to flip. Why? Matthew 25 says, God has entrusted each one of us with talents for the, purple, uh, for the purpose of us using them. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 says that God, when we were saved, gave us a spiritual gift. For what purpose? To build up other Christians in the church. It says in 1 Corinthians 3 that we're going to build upon the altar of Christ in our life, and he will judge us for how we build on it. And it says at the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 48, not to grow weary, but to remain steadfast in the work of the Lord. Church family, where is God calling you to serve? Here in our church family, out there in the community. I can't answer that for you because that's between you and the Lord. But understand, we need to all be clear, every one of us in this room, God has called us to a ministry. And if we are to live as Christ and die as gain, then we must labor fruitfully in that ministry. So church family, what do we do with this? Here in a moment, we're going to walk into the invitation. Ben's going to come back up. We're going to, we're going to stand. We're going to sing a song of worship. For some of you, it's time to respond. Your, your heart's alive. You sense the Spirit. It's time to respond and just say amen. And you sing your heart out and worship to the Lord. For some, maybe you're driven to pray. Maybe that's praying right there in your prayer. Maybe that's coming up to the altar. There's nothing magic, but sometimes we just need to move and get on our knees before the Lord and pray, asking God to move in our midst, asking God for revival amongst us, asking God for awakening our community, asking God, maybe it's coming down to confess sin. Maybe it's possible there's someone in the room who says, yeah, for me to live is not Christ because I'm not alive, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I would love to live as Christ. I would love to live as Christ, to live with the peace of the Prince of Peace, to live with the comforter of the great comforter, to, to live with the agape love of God. I, I, I would love to know that life, that abundant life that the good shepherd gives. Then here in a moment, after I pray and we enter into the invitation, man, run your way down here and let one of us talk to you and introduce you to Jesus Christ today. Church family, God has a plan and purpose for us, but we must be a people for whom to live as Christ and die as gain if we are going to walk with him and see that purpose accomplished through us. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, it is all about you. And I praise you because it has been so evident in this place today. I just, it just in my own spirit, just the time of worshiping you through song, the time of prayer together, uh, God, opening up your word, even as I preach the word, I am in no way exempt, Lord. In every way this sermon is directed to me as much as it is anybody else in this place. Father, I just pray very simply, Holy Spirit, you are the only one who can see clearly into our hearts, even clearer than we can. Would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would you stir us? And Father, may our hearts just yield. So I don't know who needs to respond and how we need to respond. 
But Father, may we respond to you in this time of invitation. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.